0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Reflecting Value, the podcast where we ask the big questions relating to cultural value in a reflective space. In this episode, I'm exploring the question of power and agency in cultural participation. To understand more, I spoke with members of the theatre company of Cymru about their experiences of creating new work in the Welsh Valleys, and to researchers Sylvan Baker and Helen Graham, who are using participatory research methods to address the power imbalances within cultural experiences. So first, to Avant Cymru. You're listening to Den Building by Beat Technique and Angharad Jenkins, a track produced by Avant Cymru. Avant are a theatre company from the South Wales Valleys who use theatre, dance, hip-hop and artistic activities with and for their local community.
1: Chris, if you can hit record on yours. Gabby, if you can hit record on yours. And Rachel, if you can
2: hit record on yours.
0: I sat down with creative director Rachel
2: Pedley and company members
0: Chris and Gabby to talk to them about their experiences of creating work that champions the stories that come from the Valleys. You'll hear them use the acronym RCT. This refers to the Rhondda Cynon Taft County Borough in the south east of Wales. Could you tell me a little bit about the history of Avant? So how did it how did it
3: get started? I kind of had different motivations for starting Avant. Um, one was that I'd. Um, moved back home to Wales, and I found it really difficult to get work. I'd been a performer at, um, on theatre and film in London and New York, and and a teacher. Then, and when I came back, there was there was so many like hurdles, and not, not many oppor- job opportunities. Um, so I wanted to obviously create work opportunities. But the other was that um, one of the reasons for moving back home is that I'd gone through eleven miscarriages and. Um, I had a story in me and I, I needed to tell I needed to be able to talk about it and I couldn't talk with my family or my friends and it wasn't something you could talk about very o- openly but by actually making a show and connecting with the other families like that um, it experienced recurrent miscarriage it was an opportunity to to write that story and to share that story with others what
0: was the kind of reception to the work that you were producing back in those early days
3: Oh, that's a complicated one because of, um, well, the actual women who had had recurrent miscarriage and the fathers and the grandparents, the the amount of reception we had when we'd made the first version and performed it locally and took it to fringe was really really positive but then when it came to developing it further for sort of a larger scale tour and actually you know take it to arts council as well to develop the people then with the money and the power the venues that were going to support it they only would support it if we use like their friends to make the show um so we weren't able to sort of we weren't able to create it in the way that was had been created by the people that had the experience. It had to be created by the people who already had the power and the money um, within the arts to tell the story and and. <laughs> It's heartbreaking because I went with it because I felt that they were there to help me at the time. And I realised that that wasn't the case. It's just that that they're so used to having the control that only art is being able to be told in the way that the the people that already have the power, money, the assets actually want it to be told.
0: So maybe if I come to um, Gabby and Chris now, um, I'm just really interested to how you became involved with Avant. Where did you first come across it? How did you get involved? And maybe start with Gabby first.
4: I first actually came into contact with Avant through um, two friends of mine who were doing a youth project with them and I got invited to take part. Uh, We were actually developing a youth production of Punk Rock and uh, it was our own little project, something that we were just develop. Ourselves with Rachel's help and guidance in how to um, actually form that into a production to perform on stage. And uh, it was through that that I got introduced to Avant and to Rachel. And ever since I've been helping as much as I can.
5: Well, I started acting about six years ago um, and my best friend got, got me my first roles with various companies. And, um, he was working with Avant at the time and he said, come along and have a word as, as you do in this industry. Um, and I traveled down to Bristol to watch a Shakespeare that Avant were, uh, were working on down there. Um, watched the show, spoke to Rachel afterwards. And well, a, a couple of years later then, like I say, about three years afterwards, uh, I was approached by Rachel to come and join in with the company. Uh, the reason I, I wanted to take part in Avant's productions in particular was because there, and I'm sure this is the case in most regions, there's a very centralized form of uh, artistic production which usually gravitates around the major cities, in particular here at Cardiff. Um, I'm a Valleys boy um, and there are limited opportunities around where I live. And Avant does provide um, not only well-paid work but artistically meritous work.
0: Thank you, Chris. um so this is maybe a question for Rachel, but you can all um chip in um so I'm really interested in how you kind of embedded yourself within these communities that you work with um how How did you get started in making these connections and working with the people that you work with? I
3: suppose different reasons one is that I was born here and love this place like with all my heart. But the the other thing was is that um I'd come back and I wanted to make work and I I just wanted like an open process to meet other people like everybody was migrating to Cardiff or Bristol or further afield to try and get work and I could like I couldn't believe that there wouldn't be more creative people living locally and there would be more opportunity to kind of come together and actually make something like I didn't know Chris I didn't know Gabby um I didn't know any of the others that are part of a van and um I suppose it's that openness then of sort of saying I'm here I'm doing this is anybody else here doing this can we catch up and have a chat and make this together and um, I suppose that openness then was the thing that made it allow Avant to grow organically and just allow for that development together.
0: We always have conversations about funding and how that can impact um, programmes and projects and people so I guess um, in an an ideal world what changes would be made to be able to centre the voices of, of people? Is it just about Sort of more more money invested into these areas or is there multiple layers that need to be considered
3: in wales you've got the new cultural contract um, which we're needing to be developed to be able to be in receipt of um like any money to do with culture without uh, coming from welsh government um and in that then i was looking at who had received funding in rct and eight over 87 percent in the last sort of three years has been going to the same three arts portfolio of wales companies they're not reaching very many people and them then not necessarily being people who live in our city is sort of it means that people are going without without funding um and then opportunity
4: as a young person here you know surrounded by a lot of young artists growing up you you can definitely see that you know it's it's there's almost an attitude here in the Rhondda of, well, there's no opportunities here. I need to go to London. I need to go outside, not just of of the ronda of, you know, these smaller areas, but even outside of the country to, to get where I need to get and to have these opportunities and to have these resources. And then when you get there, you've almost got to catch up, you know, to the level that you need to get to succeed.
5: We're often looked at as almost second class here in the valleys we're not perceived as being worth it because we're not from a, a center of population and industry we are looked at as a bit of a backwater and therefore people are reticent to come here the irony is that when people do come here they tend to enjoy themselves thoroughly and find out that uh, there is a lot to be offered here but there is I think a feeling of being culturally left behind and it's it's heartbreaking, really. It is. Um, why should somebody from the Yorkshire coalfields not have their voice heard as over somebody somewhere around the M twenty five? I've actually got a lump in my throat saying about all this because it's it's not fair to those people who aren't getting a voice. A family somewhere, I don't know, in Toxteth, isn't going to get the same, the same voice as somebody in in Chelsea, and it's it's. <sighs> it's disappointing that it should be it should come down to a matter of perception of what is valuable and i can tell you now that we are valuable each and every one of us are valuable our stories are there to be heard and organisations such as avant are able to in some small way afford that to us
0: Talking to members of Avant highlights the challenges of working with rural communities when it comes to competing with larger cities, and how this impacts on the work that they can create. Although they're creating work that centralises the voices of the Valley's communities they work with, it seems as if they can come across roadblocks which mean they're having to make compromises, and having this feeling of being culturally left behind. Although a more equitable distribution of funding seems a top priority for the company, they're also aware that it's not just a question of money, but what's deemed valuable by funders and the broader public. At the centre, we're currently bringing together research relating to cultural participation through reviewing the research literature. From reading the work in this area, I've become really interested in the question of how the research process may add an extra layer of hierarchy to having people's experiences of culture heard. I spoke to Sylvan Baker about his experiences of using participatory and co-produced research methods, which centralise the voices of young people with care experiences.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Sylvan Baker, and I am a senior lecturer at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. And uh, my disciplinary area is uh, applied theatre which really is about using theories, practices and techniques that come from theatre and performance, but not in conventional theatre settings. So in schools, in prisons, in the streets, in sites of conflict, places like that.
0: How would how you define co-research and how does it differ to other, other approaches in this field?
1: So for me, co-research, I mean, I guess the the clue is in the name. It's that there is a shared autonomy amongst those who may have enacted research and those who are participating in it. Um, It's not just collaboration. I may invite you to help me with something, and then we can be said to be collaborating. But if I'm driving all of the decisions and I have all the power, the amount of agency that you have in that collaboration is challenged. Whereas for me, co-research means that it isn't a consultative role for participants. They are sharing the labor of the research. They have control of decision-making. They receive credit. And they are central to the ethical choices that are made around it, as well as the practical choices. So on that arbitrary continuum, you might have at one end participation. I'm doing something collaboration near the middle, maybe, which would be, I'm doing something with some people, and co-research, co-intentional research, inductive, iterative research at the other end of that, of that arbitrary binary in which the participants have agency and feel comfortable enough to challenge researchers to orient the control and the direction of the research, and then have a say in how it's disseminated and where and what the outputs and outcomes are.
0: So what, what would you say are the core elements for research that's authentically co-research?
1: There are, I think, stages to genuine, authentic co-research. The first stage may be a community or a practitioner researcher identifying an area, an area of concern, an area of interest, an area that is perhaps already underexplored, underexamined. So in this ideal situation, a practitioner or researcher has resources to then go to a community that are directly linked with the area of concern. And maybe the first part of that Connection is about checking in. I've discovered this thing. Is this thing relevant to you? Is it something that you have interest in? Is it something that you would be motivated to take part in finding out more about? And then the real work might begin. And there are two or at least two stages to that so called real work. One is ensuring that these participants are genuinely located in a space that allows them to feel expertise they don't have to know everything but they have to feel that they are bringing something to their participation that merits them being there and ideally in this perfect scenario we're creating there is ongoing monitoring and evaluation built in which the co-researchers are just as connected to as the other researchers and understand and can respond and give genuine feedback and uh, then there is scope for critical reflection and learning. What did the participants discover? What changed, if anything? What would they like to do at the resolution of the research? How does the research benefit them and the other researchers involved? Do they get credit? I'm in the middle of the a, a, a setup for a, a long piece of research, four-year piece of research now, where we want to work in um, a co-intentional and collaborative way. And we're working with um, adult participants, and one of the things some of them said was, if you write anything about this, will we be named as authors? And we said, you better be, otherwise it isn't really co-research, which in some of the physical sciences and other disciplines is the norm. But actually, in um, applied discourses, often multi-authored research projects don't go on in the same status that single author research does. The idea that you work as part of a team and valorize all of the team isn't necessarily seen as productive for one's career, I could say, controversially.
0: Um, so I'd love to hear um, a little bit more about what you're currently working on and how you're kind of applying these, these principles um, to, to your, your work at the moment.
1: One is on a, a large piece of collaborative and, and co-researched inquiry, and the research is called the verbatim formula. And it invites predominantly young people who have had experience of the UK care system to use that lived experience as a diagnostic on the system with the overarching aim of making the system as productive for young people who find themselves in care as possible. So we wondered what would happen if we engaged in a particular kind of verbatim and we invite young people as co-researchers to interview each other and to derive interview questions which allow them to discuss with us and each other what they think about the system, what works, what could be improved. So the young people will record each other on audio devices, and then collectively decide which elements of those interviews they would want to be shared. So then we have the research. And the research takes these testimonies and seeks to position them. And the audience for these sharings are social workers, foster carers, and other adult professionals who are Linked to the care system. But we discovered in asking them to select pieces of their own testimony and then, as it were, place them in the mouths of others and to have a say about whose mouth might say it became really interesting. Uh, Initially, I was working, for example, with uh, a young woman, a white young woman who was 14, who got into care when she was seven years old. And she decided that it would be interesting if I shared her testimony. And the way in which we share the testimonies is I would play her voice and her testimony into headphones so only I am hearing her and then say out loud what I'm hearing. But then something quite surprising happened for us. We discovered that the social workers who had been there, done it, were veterans. They had a much more visceral reaction to the performance of a testimony than we ever imagined. They said afterwards to us, because we share and then ask our audiences to tell us how they feel and what they think about what's just been shared. And then we record that as well. So in that process, we discovered that a lot of social workers had a a really affective reaction. They felt emotional. Some got tearful, some got angry, some were embarrassed about what they were hearing, even though they had on closer uh, dialogue with them, even though they'd heard stories like this, or been party to some of the stories themselves, we started to discern, as as a group of researchers, both younger and older, that this might give some kind of access as to what it feels like to be in care. And that is a a luxurious space, really, because it it democratises the room. Still, one of my favourite outcomes of of our research in the verbatim formula was a social worker who, when when they'd heard some testimonies about what it was like to be in care now and was invited by us to say what they might do differently, they simply said, I'm going to turn my phone off when I'm talking to a young person so that I'm I'm completely present. And again, that doesn't sound like much. But our young researchers said, well, if my social worker turned their phone off and put it on the table in front of me and then said, OK, I'm listening, that would mean a lot to me. So it's a small thing with a massive outcome, as far as I'm concerned.
0: It's clear that applied participatory methods have a real power in enabling young people to share their experiences, and the outcomes have such a visceral impact on audiences which allow this dialogue to be opened up about complicated topics. The terms participatory and co-researched have a tendency to be thrown around as buzzwords, but it's clear from this discussion that authentic co-research requires a shifting of power, handing it over to those who need their voices heard the most. Next, we turn to the question of how a shift in power may enable communities to feel more ownership over what's created and presented within cultural spaces. I spoke to Helen Graham about her research, which explores museums and heritage, especially the political dynamics of property and cultural democracy.
2: So, my name's Helen Graham. Um, my background's working in museums and heritage in community development and participation, and that really forms the focus of my research now. I'm really interested in questions of how organisations work, how they're structured, how they think about themselves politically, and often use action and participatory methods to do that. So, one of the things that people often think about when they think about museums are a very traditional form of display, which is the glass case. So the idea that you would have an object. That's made accessible, but through having a glass encasement around it. And on one hand, this seems very practical, doesn't it? It seems like a very practical way of enabling something that's considered to be precious, uh, available for people to see. So the idea that the material culture in that glass case is fragile, that it's needing of protection, that it needs to be protected by the institution. There's also the sense that the reason why it needs to be protected is because there's a future generation out there that need to have access to it. So in a way, in case within the glass case is an argument for what museums have traditionally been, which is organisations that seek to look after fragile material culture for future generations, make it accessible to people now and get their justification and and legitimise themselves through making that balance on behalf of these wider public constituencies.
0: So I guess what would be really interesting... And and it's probably, well, there's so many different ways of um, defining it. But how would you define kind of
2: authentic co-production or co-creation within museum spaces? So I think the question of co-production in museums has been very much a contested one. I know this is true across the cultural sector, but it does have particular qualities in the museum and heritage context, in part because of this question of, of conceptions of what the museum does in terms of material culture. So in a way, co-production in a museum context is always snarled up with that wider political structure. So if people are wanting to use collections, like I've worked, for example, with people who are passionate about synthesizers on the Science Museum's synthesizer and electronic music collection, and they don't just want to see it uh, behind a glass case. They want to be able to play the synths, activate them, use them for their intended purpose, and really question whether or not collecting A synthesizer, turning it into a black box that's never turned on, that is only looked at from afar, is actually conservation in any way whatsoever. So there's a kind of fundamental museological challenge that comes about as soon as you start to create dialogue between the institution and people who've got real passion, care and knowledge. And so um, part of what um, my recent work, which has very much been collaborative and has only been possible because of the research relationships I've had with all sorts of people, both those who work inside museums and those that work outside Is to work more actively by making visible those political tensions, because if you make them visible, at least you can start to do something with them, start to navigate them. Because I've also been, before I realised this, in many, many projects where you just kind of end up butting up constantly against the structures of the museum, thinking why can't they change, but not perhaps understanding the conceptual investment that the institution has in those kinds of ideas of conservation for future generations and everyone now which means that always the groups that you're working with are kind of almost necessarily pushed away by that constitution because they're just a small group and they're not everyone and what about people in the future and we need to look after this stuff and so it's actually getting to that fundamental political dynamic of museums that will ultimately make a different kind of co-production possible.
0: So um, I guess what would be really interesting is um, to hear a little bit more about
2: Co-production within your own research and what you're kind of working on um, at the moment. So, project I finished recently um, was called Bradford's National Museum, and it was a collaboration with National Science and Media Museum and a number of people within Bradford who've got flourishing community development practices. So, the whole project itself was co-designed. So, the the project came out of a series of workshops and conversations with the museum, but also the community partners who were the core research team. Um, And the agenda really was around how the National Science and Media Museum, which is part of the Science Museum group, could become more locally rooted and more open, engaged and collaborative. And we framed it as an action research process, which would actively involve people who live in Bradford and have care and interest in the museum and people who work in the museum. Um, We were particularly interested, given the museum's historic disconnection of people who are making stuff happen. So they're the people who run community groups, who are activists about various things, who are, you know, the kind of movers, the shakers, the people who are making change in their communities in lots of different ways. So the deliberate strategy to really work with that network of people within Bradford. And that led in the second year of the three year project to a large collaboratively produced exhibition called Above the Noise, 15 stories from Bradford. Each of the 15 stories was co-produced with people who got a stake in telling that story. But overall, it was an intervention in perceptions of Bradford at a national level as being a place which, as one of my collaborators always put it, was a bad news place, a place where you went for stories of segregation, um, of racial discontent in various ways, of Islamophobia or radicalisation. So, but it was also, along with doing all of that content-wise, it was also part of a process for understanding how the museum could work differently. Um, And we then spent the rest of the project really working through what we'd learnt through the experience of doing Above the Noise. I think it's fair to say it was not an easy process. The publication is structured around um around 30 moments of people reflecting on moments where they understood something or something changed for them we then developed collaborative processes in the museum where we'd read out loud like really listen to things that people had said about their experience of being involved in above the noise and then we did a process of sort of working out what the museum wanted to do with that in terms of moving forward but the big message that came out of that process was that there was a tension that was not entirely reconcilable between the museum being national, being, being part of this big governance structure that the Science Museum Group is self accountable to DCMS in different ways and doing kind of lo, you know localised co-production work. So what we tried to conceptualise was whether those tensions could be framed as strengths and whether by actively talking about them, they could be navigated and negotiated in a, in a kind of clearer, more fruitful way. Um, And that was, yeah, that was really where the project ended up.
0: What steps do you think need to be taken going forwards to make museums
2: into more sort of democratic spaces? So I think um, the main thing for museums is to unpick this kind of museum constitution that I, I spoke about at the beginning in terms of the glass case. So the museum constitution is this idea that material culture is fragile and that the museum needs to conserve it. And make it accessible to everybody now and all future generations and represent the world so this is a conceptual structure that then leads to the kind of political dynamics that make participation and co-production very difficult but not only that i think will also make decolonization very difficult as well and potentially responding to climate emergency in different ways because of the idea of the future that is bound up within the museum constitution so i would think i really think that the main thing that museums need to do to make change is to start to relax those conceptual impossibilities. So they're already impossible things. You can't make things accessible to everyone. You can't look after everything to future generations. You can't represent the world. And yet those conceptual dynamics are still very powerful within museum definitions, within museum ethics, within museum mission statements, and exist within everyday justifications for why certain things have to happen or can't happen. So one of the things I'd be interested in seeing, and, and lots of museums are, are doing this in different ways, is just a relaxing of that conceptual structure. And once you start to think not about everyone, but certain kinds of networks and communities and responsibility, whether that's locally or thematically, once you start to not think about future generations, but start to think in different ways about time and people, once you start to not think about material culture ontologically as being fragile, but start to think of it as something that can be used and can be dynamic and can change, then actually all sorts of political possibilities open up for all sorts of ways of working and ways of being and ways of reimagining the institution. But it's those enlightenment structures, those conceptual structures that um, are holding museums into a certain position. And there's lots of examples, but also a lot of possibilities for just relaxing that conceptual structure and using that variability and more specificity and particularity that comes out of that to do transformatory work.
0: For me, it's been fascinating to explore this idea of power and agency in the context of cultural participation. Who defines what counts as culture? And how have socio-political structures got in the way of what's valued and what's not? It's clear that cultural participation allows an opportunities for voices that have been marginalised to be heard. But there's also a danger that the same voices will be heard time and time again. Empowering these voices requires the people who hold the power in this area funders, researchers, policymakers, to acknowledge and take action on these imbalances and support everyone to feel like they have a say in the cultural landscape. But what do you think? Get involved with the discussion by searching hashtag reflecting value on Twitter. That's all from me. Thank you for listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. See you next time.